Wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two, my life flows. And I think that on a retreat, between the two, my life flows can be a helpful reminder <laughs> at times that um, how important they both are in our life. Uh, so this talk is. Uh, somewhat about this flow. Maybe a tinge more on the wisdom side. Uh, The last retreat that Jesse and I taught in British Columbia uh, was at a place called Sea to Sky. Um, It's a small Tibetan center and it's up above a, a glacial lake um, I think it's called Daisy Lake and uh, the water is like a milky beautiful glacial green but it has a milkiness to it and once in a while um, if you walk up just the regular road into it if you look down you might see in the early morning when the lake is very still very still uh, a few ducks and um, it's pretty wonderful to see that even if one duck like even just turns a little bit just a little bit just one very small little movement you can see the ripples go out into this huge lake it's just um, so clear that one just one of our movements echoes through the universe it's just it, it's so powerful to see it like that and part of um, part of the encouragement to to slow down and, and get out of that habit the habit of being busy um the habit of you know getting somewhere and <laughs> doing things on, on a retreat is to start tuning in at times to our impact, just our impact on the world. Just that, just that when you know when you take one peaceful step, um, it's it's like it ripples through the world. And when we take one fearful step it ripples through and you can feel it you can feel when somebody's really being mindful how um, 
catchy it can be. Unless you're in a grumpy mood, you know. If you're grumpy, you might be like, I don't know, I feel slow, or you know, whatever. But it's like generally, if you're somewhat open, it you can you can see how inspiring it is to um, be around somebody who's being mindful, and then you can see how painful it is being around somebody who's really disturbed. Unless we're able to be mindful with that being, if we're open to the disturbance, of course, it's not disturbing. One of the aspects of this practice that um, you will hopefully hear repeated a lot that this practice is not about what kind of experience we're having, but it's always the relationship that we're having with the experience. So there's this impartiality that develops. Impartial meaning that the experience of loneliness, that we relate to it equally as the experience of um, of the deepest meditation we could have the experience of um, whatever. It's like brushing our hair is as important as sitting down in here. That each moment is considered valuable and for waking up. It, it's, it's so that that impartiality will deepen and that makes, that, makes uh, that understanding is motivating. Meaning that we don't have to think, oh, it's not important that I pay attention brushing my teeth. Because you understand that that, that, that that life experience is worthy of our attention. It's life happening. We also, from this shift of... Um, Picking and choosing what experiences are important to pay attention to and what aren't. Within that, there starts to be um, a growing understanding that we don't have to make an interpretation about ourselves in relationship to if if the experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. For example, you know, if you're having, you know, we'll, we'll think we're having a bad sitting, you know, or a good sitting, and we'll make, we'll make this judgment, oh, this is a good sitting, and then it's therefore, we miss it. Therefore, I'm a good person. And if I'm having a bad sitting, therefore, I'm a bad person. This is huge. It's this interpretation we're making around what the experience is because, okay, underneath that is this belief we can control it. We believe, for me, my, my most uh, insidious doubt, doubt that I would fall for over and over is that if I was working hard enough, I could make my practice better. You know, it's just always my fault that it's just like there's something wrong with the way I'm doing it or it would be better right so there's right there's this belief 
that I can control it, and I'm no good because I can't. And one of the, the wonderful um, joys of a longer retreat is that you just keep seeing yourself fall for that again and again and again. It's like, wow, you know, if you if you were leaving today, you wouldn't even remotely start to see it. So this deeper contentment that has nothing to do with experience, this peace that's possible, comes from us starting to get... Um, disenchanted uh, not caught in the spell of this drama of experience itself it's just this pleasure pain syndrome and the interpretation we're making about it rather than understanding that we're taking birth into this vast range of joy and sorrow from a very remote area of Newfoundland, uh, not not any kind of town or city. Uh, and she was really one of the only functional pr- pr- people in my family. <laughs> uh, and so if I ever got to go over there, um, I would notice that she would get up around 3 or 4 in the morning and start cooking. You know, they were factory people so they you know they she did um, she made lunch for everybody and they they would come home for lunch and go back to the factory Uh, so she'd start really early Um, and um, so I started getting up Uh, this is before I even went to school I would get up and just hang out because it felt so good to be in the presence of someone uh, doing that and she would call everything that she touched Johnny and so it was very different <laughs> you know, so she'd pick up a pot and she'd go hi Johnny you know or like she'd be like picking up a spoon hi Johnny Johnny everything was Johnny and I remember at first it was so um, strange that I thought she was crazy. And I really thought, oh, I better not pay attention to this anymore. Um, but it was so comforting that she was cooking that I kind of stuck with it. And um, she, there was a piece, there was a piece in her kitchen, and there was a way that she had a relationship with her life. This was her life. This is what she was proud of. This is what she did. And um, something about it went in. But I forgot about it for many years. And I was on a self-retreat a few years ago uh, and going through a a darker time. Uh, And I went up to this place that I have a view of some mountains. And... uh, all of a sudden, I called one of the mountains Johnny. <laughs> I was like, hi, Johnny. And it was like, wow, 
wow, it was so, um, it cut through that feeling of disconnect. Uh, and then I've tried that. Um, I don't always call every tree I see Johnny. Uh, and, it, you know, it, I'm not saying you call everything you see Johnny. But, <laughs> um, but you might try. <laughs> it could be Matilda. <laughs> but it is a sense of how cut off we can get from relating to our world and what we're touching, what we're seeing. We, we get this feeling of loneliness or alienation um, that is so profound. And it's because we're cut off from the relationships that are happening all the time, which is why I'm bringing up this, this duck <laughs> in the water, because it's so clear that we're so connected and we're, you know, partly this practice is starting to um, understand that we're misperceiving reality, that the alienation is coming from misperceiving reality, uh, and that that any way we can bring about the sense of connection, whether it feels like it might be more on the surface or very deep. Uh, it's good that it pervades all the layers of reality. So the, that sense of once in a while, just wondering, how could we have lost so much interest in this relate, relating? How, how, how does it even happen that we, we have this body that we are so not interested in as it is. It's, uh, it's beyond the wildest dreams you could have that you could be trained to be that disinterested in it. Or our emotions. Or our thoughts. I mean, it's truly amazing that we could get to whatever age we are and to be this disinterested. That it takes so much to get to a place where we're even the slightest bit interested in the experience of anger, for example. You know, it, it is um, a great feat. <laughs> or, you know, for example, uh, how unkind we are to ourselves, really. That drive to be perfect and whatever that means. It means that we shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't think that. We shouldn't be like that. That person shouldn't be like that. It's just endless, this criticism. It's cruel, actually. So in this practice, there is a kind of rhythm that will happen between when it will feel like we will, we will call the practice good practice. It's, it's usually when there are, uh, as Jesse said last night, there are factors of awakening or enlightenment that will appear, such as calm or investigation or mindfulness or equanimity. Equanimity is that we totally understand that the appearance of fear is okay. It's not fake. We're not trying 
to make it okay. We're not trying to make whatever is happening okay. It, we understand that the attention is impartial. It's genuinely impartial, meaning it's interested in whatever is appearing, not what we want to be appearing. So if that's present, we're very protected. But if any of these factors of awakening, joyful interest, any of them, they don't even have to be um, total or complete. They can they can be kind of watercolory and kind of coming in and out. Uh, but when that's happening, um, it it can be helpful to think of that is that it's it's more pure. There's more purity, uh, and it feels like that's why we're here. It'll feel like okay, <laughs> things are going my way. You know, practice is going good. And um, the minor detail is that um, those experiences, those times in practice, are like if you took uh, a bucket of warm, soapy water and you put a dirty cloth in it, and the dirt comes out. And when we wash something like that, we want the dirt come up, to come out. That's the intention. And when we come into a retreat, we want the dirt to come out. Right? <laughs> you, we, meaning, we want to get more practice with fear. We were, you know, like I joke about it, but it really is. I was hoping this anger would come up today because I need more practice with it. So what happens is that when those times, are like what we call good practice, are happening, we forget that that's also like being in a washing machine. Not the rinse cycle, <laughs> not the spin. That's that's when we're it's, we're cooking, um, but it doesn't seem like it. And it seems like when it's really strong, we feel invincible. We can't imagine that anything's going to come up. You know, we feel so protected. We can't imagine that we could get lost in something. You know, it's that strong. And then all it takes is the energy to go down just a little bit. And if you get if you get to know this, this happens to all of us, when you start feeling it go, it hurts. You know, we get so identified with that. It's just like, that's what we want. That's why we're here. <laughs> this is how it should be. And we forget that this is a this is called the path of purification. <laughs> And and it's like until you're fully enlightened, this is what this is how it works. I personally didn't design it. <laughs> this is and this is how it works in daily life as well. We just we're just not aware of it. It's the same process, but on the on the retreat, it can get excruciatingly clear that a new layer is coming up and just as the energy is going down the layer is coming up and it's like oh you know you really you really didn't sign up for that but here it is but unfortunately we call that resisting the new layer bad practice I'm a bad yogi you know it's just ugh. and this is how equanimity ripens just right here, over and over again. It's like this is where the disenchantment with um, I'm good, I'm bad. It's this experience that is good, this is bad. You just 
you, it's like holding a hot potato and just saying, ah, ah, why would I do that to myself? It hurts so much. This is what disenchantment means. It means disenchantment with being caught in the spell of it. So often when that layer comes up and the energy is going down, it's often when um, it will feel so personal. Like the, uh, it'll, the story, there'll be a story, it'll feel very personal. We'll try to, it's like we're in a kind of little scuffle. It's like a cartoon, really, you know. <laughs> and we, it'll, we go from the personal to the universal there. So we don't have to go, the story's bad, wrong, no, no. The story is like a clue. The story is a clue that tells us what's coming up. And it can be a layer of hopelessness. It can be a layer of sadness. It's, it's just something that we have learned to slam the door on. We've learned to resist it, and we don't want to be with it. And therefore, we don't usually say, Hi, Johnny. Right? We don't. We don't say, "Oh boy, I was hoping this s- sadness would come up." Because you know what we usually do? We usually say, "I did thirty years of therapy. I've done five retreats. Why is this still coming up?" Right? We have this poisonous disdain for it. We just like we're merciless. We're cruel. You know, it's like if you hear yourself say, "This is still coming up." you know that this is your ticket (laughs) to working well with something, right? It's like this is what we've been fighting our whole life. It's it's really hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's like the person next to you might know how to work really well with sadness. It's not their karmic knot, but it could be Loneliness. It could be hopelessness. You see, like, we all have something that is our... It's We all have something that actually we're so ashamed of, we won't even talk in public about it. <laughs> we all do. The Dalai Lama does. Everybody does. It's human. It's human. And, and so that, that in a retreat by the third or fourth day, it's going to come up. Thankfully... We finally put ourselves in the washing machine long enough that it comes out. And we want it to come out. We just don't like the process. Because we think freedom is getting rid of that. We don't get that freedom is getting a relationship with it. So we'll say again and again, it's not the experience that matters. What's painful is that resistance to it over and over again. It's like when we... And this is, you know, there was a great song by um, Bob Dylan where he said, um, there must be some kind of way out of here. 
I don't know if you know that song, but there must be some kind of way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Well, that should be the theme song of some aspects of the practice, right, where we want to get out, but we don't get that this practice is going through the experience. It's going through it and understanding it. You get out by understanding it. You don't get out by running away from it. Albert Einstein once wrote, As a human being, one has been endowed with with just enough intelligence to be able to see clearly how utterly inadequate that intelligence is when confronted with what exists. I'm going to repeat that. Einstein once wrote, as a human being, one has been endowed with just enough intelligence to be able to see clearly how utterly inadequate that intelligence is when confronted with what exists. And, and so this is what we we get confronted with on retreat is that, that any way that we usually use our intellect to try to understand experience, it doesn't work. Wise attention works. Compassion works. So in in regard to something painful that can come up in our body or our mind or emotional world or thought thought patterns, um, one of the tools we really offer and try to help people learn how to practice is compassion. Because compassionate, it's nice to say, let's be compassionate, but we don't really know how. So this is, this is what Einstein is trying to say when confronted with the reality. Even if we have the concept, it would be great to be kind. We don't have the um, practice. So compassion is a practice. And the Buddha taught that the proximate cause for the appearance of compassion is the helplessness we feel in the face of it. So he said that the, the experience of overwhelm or helplessness in the face of the pain of the world is, is the cause for the appearance of compassion. Now, our conditioning is to think of helplessness and overwhelm as bad, right? It's not the ticket. It's like, whoa too much, but but if when we start to, whether in the retreat, we're not talking about outside of here, we're talking about in the retreat, if you have physical pain, or an emotional something, or a mental pattern, whatever it is, that if you feel like it's too much, that that's actually good, it's the ticket. If you get this, it would be like, we have given you all the gold in if you get them. It's priceless. 
It's so important. So say this hand is a bloody, pussy mess. What would compassion look like? Okay, I'm saying it's a practice. So whether this is your knee pain, or your back pain, your head pain, or like fear, or whatever, whatever it is. Okay, say this is the pain, the most difficult pain you've been working with on retreat. Now here comes your attention. (laughs) The question is, what would be a compassionate awareness, right? Well, mostly, we're going to try to get rid of it, right? We're hoping if we... The first thing we do is bargain. Okay. <laughs> it's very snotty, actually. I'll be with you if you go away. <laughs> this is not Johnny. <laughs> this is not... This is not... Wow. You know, I'd like to try to learn how to have a relationship with compassion with you. This is how hard it is. We are not taught. You know, so... What would it be? Well, there's two ways we usually go out of balance. So it's easy for me to describe them because we're all good at it. One would be the type that tends to empathize and drown. Okay, so there's plenty of those types in here. Okay, you march in and you're just going to dive in, kamikaze pilot. We're going to just nail it, right? Okay, let's go in there and okay... um, that person will drown. There's no strength. There's no ability to even know what it is. It's like, it's so painful. And it's like, splat. So there's pity, sorrow, grief, right? I'm not saying they're wrong. But it's like, okay, I'm going to change the metaphor a bit. Okay, this is a dear friend that's coming along. And they see it. And they like... They, they, they can go in and they start crying. They fall, I'm exaggerating. They fall on the floor and they're like, oh, Michelle, I'm so bad. And you're like, hmm. <laughs> you know, they're not, that's not helpful. They connected. They connected. It was hopeful. <laughs> they were looking like they were going to get there for you, but they can't. Because they, they, they connected, but they drowned. Okay, here's the other type. You're coming along. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay. Now they've got a smile on their face, but they've actually stopped, right? And they're they're pretending it's okay. And they're like, gee, that's, you know, that looks kind of painful. <laughs> right? They're gone, right? They're not there. They're pretending they're connecting, but they disconnected back here. Neither of those are compassion. And we do it all the time with ourselves and others. So, and, and the indifference, the, the shutting down, it's not bad or wrong. It's our own protection if we don't have compassion. So this is, this is why in retreat it's so important to practice. If you, if you get indifferent, fine. If you get angry, fine. If you get afraid, that's the practice. There's no shoulds. It's like, okay, that's then you shift. That's what's predominant, and you shift to that. You shift to the reaction. So the practice of compassion is learning how to do all of it without the, the extra reaction. You go close, you drown. 
what would compassion be? Well, you start to practice getting close and caring. So the caring about pain is pleasant. This is painful. But the awareness that's caring is pleasant. That's how you know it's compassion. If you even, again, if you taste it once, you get how important it is. Because if you go in and you're drowning in pain about the pain, that's not wrong or bad. Sorrow, grief, they're not wrong or bad. What They're not compassion. <laughs> right? It's that's, what, that's the teaching. It's not that they're wrong and bad. So this takes, as you can imagine, a lot of practice. So would you pick the most difficult pain in your lifetime to practice this? That's what we do. And then we can't do it, and we, we give up. How about picking something kind of not that hard to feel compassion for? Pick a squirrel that's trying to get enough nuts right now to make it through the winter. That's hard. They have hard lives out there. You know, you could try that, right? I mean, you got to pick something you stand a chance with, not something you're going to drown or shut down immediately. <laughs> it's funny, but it's true. you got to pick something that, you know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe your toothbrush broke and, you know, you got, you're out of the toothbrush. Something not that bad, you know? It's like, because if you pick the deepest karmic knot you have this lifetime, it's too hard. And it, it's like, this is it. You, you, have, you just get a sense. What is compassionate awareness? What is awareness infused with this pleasant feeling of care? Well, it's not painful. And you look at burnout. You look at burnout in this world. Why? It's because people are confusing empathy and compassion. If if it's really compassion, it's actually energizing. And if it, I'm saying that you're not expected to sustain it. If it's something really painful, Jesse and I, you can hear us saying, "Dabble and leave." You dabble and leave because we don't have training. We're not protected. So again, with the practice of wise attention rather than compassion and awareness, if we're just if it's if it's mindfulness, um, and first let's do it without something painful, but anything like us as we've been practicing the concurrent attention. So if you look at what concentration is, it's the ability to bring your attention somewhere. <laughs> something something calls the attention or you go to the anchor a concentration is connecting the attention with something that's called vitaka it's considered its own um, name the name of being able to connect is vitaka vichara is the ability to sustain the attention with what's happening 
So, for example, you might try to be with the movement of the breath. You can connect the attention, but you can't sustain it through the rising, right? You can connect with the beginning of lifting your foot, but you can't connect it to the whole experience. That's part of the training. It's a training to be able to connect and sustain the attention with something that's real, with something true. We call it momentary segments. So, for example, if I try to, if I decide, oh, I'm going to get out of this room right now, and I'm going to try to do it mindfully, honestly, I would never try to do from here to that door. It's impossible. It's too hard. You know it. Try to get from here to that door. Mindfully, you can't. It's too long a segment. Too hard. So that's why in this practice, you break it into small segments so you stand a chance at being here. So, so for example, if I really want to stand a chance, I would say I'd notice the mental intention to stand. And then, and then you might make it. You might be aware of standing, maybe. <laughs> right? That's how hard it is. You might think, oh... I wonder if my if there's a note for me in the bulletin board, right? Or you're like, I wonder if my name's on. And you know, we'll we'll forget again, right? We'll forget. Oh, I better get out to my walking path before somebody else takes my path, right? You know, whatever it is that we're you know whatever we're doing, we're not we're not with that standing, right? That's why this is hard. And then it's like, okay, you know, you got to have some fun with it. It's like, let's see if I'm not going to try to get to that doorknob. I'm going to try to maybe do. One step. We're not creating this to be like some kind of torture. You know, it's like the idea is that this is how hard it is. To connect and sustain the attention with something is hard. So you break it down to a smaller and smaller segment so that you stand a chance to try it. And of course trying to do that all day is hard. But you try to do it sometimes. For example, if I want to drink this water right now, you know, the habit is, you know, you just on automatic pilot. You know, you, you don't even pay attention to it. Well, miss that one. <laughs> you have to have humor. Of course we miss it a lot. Okay, what would, <laughs> what would, <laughs> right, you have to have humor with it. It's hard. But, okay. Break it down. Intention to reach. This is this is the practice. And then well, how I was taught was to actually go reaching, 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 because you'd miss it if you're a beginner. But then that becomes so loud, you can miss it, and it can become mechanical. But there has to be some way that we stop intention to reach Look at the difference. And it has so much dignity and grace to it. You're there. You're alive. And then, but then, you know, then you can still forget, right? You can then jam that thing down, right? <laughs> you know, it's amazing. And then, you know, it's like our hands touching, touching. Our hands are touching. Now, I'm not sure I would call this Johnny, but <laughs> water is a big deal. Just 
second to breath, we need it. But do we pay attention to drinking? You know, and it's like, okay, so intention to drink. And um, there's no end to that. There's no end to the segments. And um, there's many reasons why the segments. This is just the beginning. I'm not even describing mindfulness. I'm describing concentration. Standing. The concentration is the ability to connect the attention and be there. We don't underestimate it. You don't overestimate it. Meaning, if you're too concentrated, you can get absorbed in it. You know when you start to nod, as Jesse said last night, when you're with um, the breath or sound or standing or anything, we talk a wichara. Wichara is actually could be translated as commitment. Not our favorite word in our Western world, but if you get that, it's the commitment to follow through on the experience in the segment. Not not marriage for a lifetime with Johnny. This is only a slight little commitment, <laughs> right? It's really interesting, but you know, this is where we get afraid. Do I have to do this my whole life? Well. You don't have to think about that. What you what you try to do is try to do it for a few moments. But then then mindfulness would be being aware of for me right now it's the it's the heaviness, the pressure, the coolness. It's very cool. And it's understanding that there's no I or me or glass. It's just these this process of transforming temperatures, pressures, earth air, fire, water. It's like, this is where we're really misperceiving reality. Mindfulness is what starts cutting through um, our misperception of reality. So, you know, for me, if I look at the course of a day of practice or my daily life, but first I'm always working with the the light concentration. Because I know I can't see it clearly without it. I know I can't understand it. It will be a memory. It'll be a memory from the past. Of course, I can sit here and describe what, what that experience was reaching for the glass as a memory. But if I, if I go to reach for it next, it's always new. It's always for the first time. And the last time. <laughs> it's it's always hello goodbye hello goodbye hello goodbye hello goodbye that's vipassana facing that so many people tried to use that Mahasi method of uh, reporting today and we weren't, um, we're not requiring it, but just to say that um, when I first started doing that when I was working with Sayada Upandita when I had my first interview I said, you know, I was noticing the rising falling at the abdomen (laughs) it was already wrong right, and he said don't just say abdomen, say abdomen area. 
you know, and in my mind, I was going, geez, Katie, you know, it's like, it's all, every interview was like that, I'd be like, oh, he's so picky, you know, like, it was just endlessly, this, this process of having to hear, you know, oh, see if you can let go of saying it like that, but why? And it was because he was trying to help me, he was trying to help me find the language that would be less conceptual. And if the language is less conceptual, your experience will start to get less conceptual. For example, so I'd come in the next time and I'd say, I was noticing a rising fawn at the abdomen area, and I noticed, you know, the breath was, uh, I don't know, you know, expanding, and he'd go, you know, it was always like that. Why don't we try? <laughs> it would always be like, oh, you know, but then I would look and it was just be more and more honesty. It just got, it just gets more and more honesty and then, okay, what is really happening? Well, it took a month for me to come in and say, oh, I, I was thinking I had to notice all this stuff. So it was so hard to get it that simple. I was just, I noticed. <laughs> It's so funny because it's so simple. I like I noticed. Oh, I was so mad too. I was like, I noticed movement. You know, it's like it wasn't even nice. I was like, I noticed movement, and he was like, you know, you know, his mind was like, finally, you know, finally, she's like getting it, right? And I'd be walking away like, are you kidding me? Like this is what he wanted me to say. Like I couldn't even quite grok it, you know. But then there's something to that, right? Like what I think of me, my body, what is it? This is the, what is it? And it's like love tells me I'm everything. We love that. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. We don't like that. That's why this is hard, because it's like, it's if you start to pay attention to anything closely, it's hard on there. And then to try to describe that, it took me so long to be able to see, okay, there's nuances in this. So it started to be, oh, the movement disappeared quickly. You know, that probably took another month, and he's like, you know. It's like, oh. It's the same with lifting, but it's the same with reaching. It's like, what is that really... What's that experience really like? Well, it's pretty light. And, and of course, there's a therefore. What are we clinging to? What are we holding on to? This is, this is the, it's the implication of it. It's not just that, you know, there's a layer of we're getting our life back. This is good enough. If we just got to be able to walk to that door without having to entertain ourselves from here to the door, right, it would be big. But there's also so many layers of this. It just opens up, it opens up, it opens up, and there's more and more freedom. And, you know, it's like we really... We can't do that all day. One has to see. That's why it's like I learned to just, when I, I checked, you'll hear us say, 
check to see if you can investigate more on that in that way. But if you can't, it's no problem. It's not personal. Then you just shift back to lightly walking out. You don't try to get the microscopic detail. You can be mindful with a very open concentration and open awareness. So you start learning that you can have a... This is why we start with an open awareness with sitting or walking, and then a a medium lens, and then a microscopic lens. Because they're all important training. There's not one better than another. One is helpful sometimes, another will be helpful another time. kindness or any of it. It's like you can't make any of it happen, but you can check. And sometimes you can. I think this will be my 21st or 22nd year of teaching a retreat in Burma in January at a monastery in Upper Burma, as Jesse said. And um, often um, people don't realize that teachers get kind of tired at retreats, but also we have a humanitarian aid project there that requires a lot of energy and time. And I often um, reward, give myself a reward at the end of that retreat. Like, you know, when I fly out of Burma, I go to this place in Rangoon um, called the Shwedagon. And the Shwedagon is this extraordinary uh, pagoda. It's huge, and um, it's gold. And I remember the first time I landed in Rangoon, um, I didn't really want to go. I was kind of doing it as a, as a favor and we and I was driving from the airport to the place I was staying, uh, and I looked over and I didn't even know it existed this way to God. But it's just um, so moving, and I just I teared up. And uh, it's the best time to go is when it's dark in the early morning or late at night. And There are many things extraordinary about that place, but one of them is that there are people there, you know, monks and nuns, that have practiced there their whole lives. It's like, there's people there that have been doing metta, you know, like they're 60 years old, and all they've done is metta there. You know, it's really different. 
<laughs> it's different than how we were raised, you know. It's like, wow. Or, you know, there's somebody there who's been just doing Vipassana there. They're not even in monasteries. They're there. And it's they're very quiet. And it's huge. So they're off in little corners. And then, and then the other thing that's amazing is that um, it's the favorite thing for families to do there. So you have people picnicking there, and um, they go for their birthdays usually and light candles and do little offerings. And um, So there's this amazing mix of humanity and depth of practice, but also fun. And it's all kind of happening. Um, and especially, things, things got really, really bad there with the military government. Um, and, and it was like this horrible blanket of oppression. Uh, it was so bad that, um, like one year I, I flew in, and uh, this is the capital of, Rain, of Burma, and there was not one light on. I flew in at night. Kind of amazing, right? But, but, I mean, I could go on and on about that, but, you know, it's like where we are up and across from Mandalay, um, the, the government would give the people uh, electricity maybe Monday and Thursday night from 5 to 6. That's all they ever got. So there was no... You just assume there would be no light there, ever. Years and years of this. This is hard, right? Um, it's just, that's the light stuff, you know? Um, but these people could come to the Shwedagon. It was really, you could just feel like this is all they had, and it was huge in these time periods. And the military even took over there, but they couldn't stop people from going. Um, very, very powerful. And so this, this time that um, I was looking, I look forward to it so much, and it's like this reward, but I had had, just the year before I had gone there, and I had this really good sitting, right? Like, you know, you label it a good sitting. And I, I knew I, I didn't want to be attached to it, but I was. So, like, I was, I, was, I was trying to talk myself out of being attached to it. I was, like, the whole year, I'm like, you really, you, it's, you're going to be disappointed. You know, you know how you try to self, talk yourself out of it, but I was. Like, and so, and it's building up and building up. I'm there three weeks. I'm, I'm going down. I get up early, and I'm like, ah, I'm so attached to this. But I couldn't help it. And I went, I went to the same spot. Bad idea, right? <laughs> it's a huge place, but no, I know it's a bad idea. I go to the same spot. Um, and I'm exhausted. I'm beyond exhausted. So I'm sitting there, like, hoping hoping for something that's not in the cards anyway. And, and so I'm sitting there, and it, it's like this incredibly, um, this woman who, you know these people, are the, the people, she's, like, been practicing there her whole life. You know, she's very quiet. She's a lay person, uh, but she's super quiet. And then, you know, I'm like, wait. I'm going to really have a good time, you know. I'm, I've nailed it, right? And so I'm sitting there. <laughs> so this lady comes out of the blue with a bucket of rice. And um, she's her mouth is filled with rice, like it's just filled with rice. And she, with her hand, <laughs> she starts feeding me. <laughs> Stuffing rice in my mouth. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and everyone's watching. And I'm like, oh. 
not what I had in mind. <laughs> My expectations, you know, like, it was like, it wasn't just a bad fitting, it was crazy, right? <laughs> and so, and, and I keep trying to, you know, pretend it's okay, just like, don't, don't make eye contact, you know, she just keeps trying to bring something up, you know? And this, like, <laughs> I gave up, you know? I gave up. And I thought it looked like a graceful surrender, but I, I'm sure I was <laughs> steaming. It's like aversive. And the lady, the nice lady, the quiet lady, looked up at me and she said, Keep trying. <laughs> man in prison that had um, been given that tape Mm -hmm. and I didn't know I didn't know that this had happened I just got this letter this summer and um, he's been in prison 11 years he gets out in 6 months and he wrote um, the first talk I listened to was called Keep Trying. I didn't even remember this. You went to a temple, and this is the best part because he's paraphrasing me. So he's telling the story to me. And he said, you went to a temple in Burma and you had found just the right place to sit. And a crazy lady came (laughs) and kept trying to feed you. And you were suffering a little (laughs) maybe I didn't tell the real story you were suffering a little about it and another woman you recognized as being very quiet smiled and just said to you keep trying I was at that time practicing in a dorm in prison so while nobody was trying to feed me people weren't interested in noble silence or any kind of quiet to support my sitting and just a little smiley face. <laughs> but hearing that story of yours encouraged me to keep trying. Mm-hmm. I was just starting then. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like we think it's hard for us, mm-hmm. but just like I was, it's so inspiring. It's like I won't read the whole thing, but you know, at the end, he said, I've laughed and cried listening to your talks. They've been a huge support to my practice, expanding my right view, right effort, right aspiration, right concentration, right mindfulness, right speech, and right action. And what I enjoy is right feeling. And he said, bluebirds in front of us, bluebirds behind us, bluebirds to the left of us, bluebirds to the right of us, bluebirds above us, bluebirds below us, Bluebirds all around us. May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
so we have to keep trying. So let's sit for a minute. So it's time for walking and then the metta choir sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.